Time now for the nationally syndicated radio show, The World of Lori Zook. And now, here she is, the smart, the sexy, the savvy, Divine Miss C. And welcome to the show. Today's going to be a fun show. Um, many of you who have listened to my show before know that I am a consumer credit consul- consultant as well as a radio host. And uh, I guess a couple of months ago, I purchased a bunch of books that had to do with debt collection because that's part of my world. And I read this incredible book called Bad Paper, Inside the Secret World of Debt Collectors, where the author Jake Halpern kind of profiled what happens following people in debt collection world. To me, it was a very fascinating book, and the topic itself is fascinating. So I have with me today Jake Halpern, and Jake, I want to welcome you to the show. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. I was looking up at all the places that you have written for. You've done a tremendous amount, but I'm going to let you talk about yourself. Yeah, well, I, I kind of am a jack of all trades. I, uh, I do uh, nonfiction magazine work, which is actually where this bad paper book started. It started as a New Yorker article. And I also do work for radio, and um, I write novels as well. That's pretty good. Now, you also went to uh, to City Honors School. You attended Yale University also, correct? Yeah. In fact, I still live in New Haven, Connecticut, and uh, I teach, I periodically teach a journalism class uh, here at Yale. Okay. Now, talk about, before we get into bad paper, tell me about some of the other books that you've written. Well, the first book that I wrote was a book about uh, people that live in dangerous uh, places, but refuse to leave, uh, to leave out of a deep-rooted sense of home. So volcanoes, fire quarters, floodplains, uh, that kind of thing. And what I did was I identified five of these places, and then I went and found a family or a person who lived there, and I basically moved in with them and lived with them in their house uh, for an extended period of time and tried to understand why they would choose to remain in a place that was so dangerous or so inhospitable. And that was really the start of my nonfiction, my narrative nonfiction career. I feel like ever since then, basically what my specialty has been is finding people that I think are in interesting situations and basically living their lives with them for some period of time, really immersing myself in their life and trying to understand um, their perspective. And I think that's interesting in itself. And, and how did you convince people that you were going to move in with them? Because, I mean, they're in a bad situation already, and now you're going to move in with them. That's kind of risky for you. Yeah, I mean, my strategy was I never never led with that. I never said, uh, can I I have the guest bedroom, or can I I sleep on your couch indefinitely? Usually I would travel with a tent, but it became kind of a running joke. The tent was actually almost just like... Um, my my foot in the door because basically once I spent like a, a little bit of time with them they would they would always say like oh don't bother with the tent just sleep in the guest bedroom or crash on the floor or the couch or whatever um, and and it really kind of drove it at a central truth that I've seen play out again and again as my career as a nonfiction storyteller which is that people really want to tell their stories people people are desperate kind of share the, their, the, the stories of their lives with, with someone who's willing to listen, and that there's usually 
always an initial hurdle to overcome where they're skeptical of, of, of you. But if you can kind of get past that and kind of get them to start talking, usually it's, it's, it's just from there you just end up going kind of deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole. I got gotcha. you. Now, your stories are, are interesting, but what's even better is the fact that you write so well. And and oh, I thanks. think, yeah, I think that was a key thing. When I, I, re- I read a lot of books. You know, I'm sure you've heard that most people don't read a book a year. And I can read right. a book. I can read a book in, in two days, you know, and yours was one of those I read in two days because once I started it, you know, it, it's in my world debt collection and what happens to people. And I was just kind of, for lack of a better word, sucked into the story the storyline and it, I kept reading it going oh my gosh oh my gosh this is all the things that I thought because in part it pertains to my business but I, I want to go in first to um, the bad paper okay the inside the secret world of you know the inside the secret world of debt collectors so that started out with an actual article but how did that article start out well so what happened was um, I had a conversation with my mother and my mother is a lawyer she um, she lives in New York, actually, um, at the time she was living in Buffalo, which is where I grew up. And she told me a story about uh, a debt collector calling and hounding her for a debt that she did not owe. It was over, um, uh, supposedly over a credit card from a department store. And my mom, as I said, my mom's a lawyer. She's a partner at a, at a large law firm. And she's not uh, a, a kind of a Lilting Lily, a Wilton <laughs> Lily, sorry. She's, she's a tough She's a tough character. And she told me, though, that I basically I paid this debt just to get this guy off my back. So I was kind of flabbergasted about this, and I started looking into it, and I saw that this was not an uncommon occurrence. And from the few people that I talked to, they said, look, the reason this happens is that it's, it's a fairly unregulated part of the marketplace, and debts, after they're kind of charged off and sold by the original creditors, we're really just talking about spreadsheets here. And these spreadsheets can be double sold, I mean sold to more than one person at the same time. Uh, uh, they can be manipulated, they're sometimes wrong. It just And I started thinking to myself, wow, I wonder if it's possible to get inside this world where these spreadsheets are just being kind of sold in this kind of wi- Wild West fashion. And, and, and that was what kind of basically led me to that initial New Yorker story. All right. Well, how did you, from that New Yorker story, lead in with the characters in the book? Because they're real characters, even though I know you've changed some of the names. First off, how did you find these people? Well, first I'll say is the amazing thing about the the book too is that actually all the main character, almost all the main characters, the two main characters, Aaron Siegel and Brandon Wilson. I they, let me use their real names. Kind of amazing. Um, but to answer your question, um, so what happened was. When I was writing that New Yorker article, I pitched a story to the New Yorker and said, let me do a story about the world in which these debts are sold as spreadsheets. Because I've been told they were, they were literally sold on street corners the way the drugs were. So I, I start poking around, and I, I, you know, I'm from Buffalo, so I kind of assured my editor confidently, oh, I'm a local boy, people will talk to me. And this proved totally untrue. No one wanted to talk to me because there was nothing, there was nothing in it for them to talk to me. And I was getting kind of desperate, and I started sending messages to everyone I went to high school with and everyone my brother went to high school with on Facebook, saying, does anyone know anyone that works in the debt collection business? And I met this one guy, his name was Jimmy, who uh, was the brother of an acquaintance. And he was um, 
African-American guy in his late 30s, had gone to prison, came out, was a dad, was trying to kind of make a good living kind of on the up and up, and opens up his own debt collection shop. And he basically says to me, I'm doing so badly, I don't know how much longer I'll be in business, but if you can get up to Buffalo, I'll show you how it works, because I want someone to see how hard this is. So I profiled Jimmy, and the weird thing about that story was he ends up kind of amazingly being this sympathetic character. I mean, not entirely sympathetic, but you're kind of weirdly rooting for him because right. he doesn't want to go back to this old life of selling drugs, and he, he's trying to kind of make a, you know, something of an honest living for himself. Anyway, the article comes out, and we get a call from uh, Brad Pitt's production company, Plan B, that says, we want to turn this into an HBO show. And would you go back to Buffalo with uh, our screenwriter, a guy named Wells Tower, and show him around so that he can get a feel for this world? So I said, yeah, I mean, if Wells wants to stay at my parents' house, like, we can crash up on their third floor and I can show him around. And he agreed, Wells agreed. And so and then I went down this long list of people that I had called to talk to me about the New Yorker piece, none of whom wanted to talk to me as a journalist. But when I said, hey, I'm uh, in town with Brad Pitt's screenwriter, will you meet with us? Like, people were tripping over themselves. <laughs> yeah, everyone wanted to talk. And like Fies to Honey, time, yep. Oh, it was just, it was amazing. I'd never seen, I'd never experienced this before. And so I was basically kind of babysitting the screenwriter, but I was getting all these stories that I had not gotten from my article. And the best of these stories, and this brings us to the main characters in the book, were two, was a team of two uh, entrepreneurs, one of whom was a former high-level banker who had done banking in London, he was originally from Buffalo. He'd come home, had deep pockets. And the other was a former armed robber who was also a very shrewd guy, kind of never gotten a break in life, done 10 years in the can, as he said. He had like <laughs> a big Boston accent. And these two guys had teamed up together for two reasons. One was that so the, the former banker had deep pockets. He had, he had access to investors. And the former armed robber had this like savant-like ability to read the spreadsheets and figure out which ones would would be worth investing in. And, and this is the big and, the former armed robber told his partner, and he was right in saying this, that this was such a lawless sector of the marketplace and regulation was so hard to come by that if trouble came down the, the, the pipe, which inevitably would, that he would be the kind of strong-arm fixer who would solve things. And then they proceeded to tell me that that's exactly what happened. A large portfolio of debts, a spreadsheet, is stolen uh, from uh, their business, and it then becomes the former armed robber's job to go track it down. Right. Now, what I want to do, um, I want to explain also what bad paper is, because a lot of people may not know that. But I, you know, I also relate that, Jake, to the mortgage foreclosures. You know, when you would hear yeah. people say, who has, who has the note? You know, where is the original note? Because what happens with, with debt collectors, If let's just say you default on a, on a credit card debt with, uh, and we'll just use Bank of America as an example mm -hmm. only. If you default on that debt, eventually Bank of America charges off that debt, and then eventually they sell it off. So on a, on a consumer's credit report, once they actually sell it off to a collection agency, it zeroes out on the credit report. And then now the debt collector who bought that debt picks it up. You know, it hits their credit report negatively by dropping their scores down substantially. And now they have that debt. And, of course, they're going to add their interest and their penalties and fees and legal fees and whatever they want to add into it. What's supposed to happen is that collection agency should have the actual paper from Bank of America. But when it's bad paper, tell us what happens. 
Right. Well, in theory, they would have all the information at their fingertips about 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 this debt. They would have the original monthly statements saying, "Here on February twenty second, I saw you charge seventy five dollars at Target, and you then you made a payment on the twenty eighth, and you knocked your overall balance down to four hundred and seventy six dollars." And the person could look at this and say, hey, "You know what? This is right. This is all accurate. This is the money that I owe." But that's not what's happening. What's happening is the original creditors are selling off just a spreadsheet. And the reason they're doing this is that it's too expensive to go back and find all this paperwork, and it's cheaper and easier for them to just sell off the spreadsheet. If they had to find all that paperwork, um, it would drive up the cost of this, of this bad paper. And no one's asking, most people are not asking for this paperwork anyway, including even when it gets to court. We can talk about that later. Right. So um, the paper, in effect, you know, you could argue that it's all kind of bad because any, the paper is just the slang for the debt, really, in this case, it's a spreadsheet. And you could argue that, that almost all of it is bad because it's not coming with any, you know, evidence and often the information is inaccurate. Now, exactly. in the industry, there's a kind of different way of using good and bad paper. If I am a debt buyer, like Aaron, the banker, and the, and the brand and the bank robber of my business, I have a slightly different term for good paper and bad paper. If I'm in the industry as a debt buyer, good paper is paper that pays. In other words, when you call the number from the spreadsheet, you're getting people who are going to actually pay the bills. And bad paper is paper where there's a problem with it for some reason or another. Either the people have already paid the debt or, or the people aren't paying. And so this the paper that I follow in my book, the paper that gets stolen, it's bad all around. It's bad because you don't have the original documentation from the bank, but it's also bad because it's been stolen. And once it's been stolen, another agency starts to collect on it, uh, and Aaron and Brandon have that much a harder time doing their job. Right. Now, don't go anywhere. We are going to take a quick commercial break. So stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. Okay. Central Payment, your number one credit card merchant service provider in the industry. Providing e-commerce solutions, POS systems, standalone terminals, mobile apps, and much more, call Central Payments James Carner at 813-777-4332. Looking for the lowest rates in the industry and number one customer service? Call Central Payments James Carner at 813-777-4332. That's James Carner, 813-777-4332. Do you miss that old school sound that made radio great? Let me invite you to preview Philharmonic's Jack of All Trades at philharmonicblues.com. A collection of Americana blues available as a download for $7.99. You can sample each track on the album page and try before you buy. Philharmonic, Jack of All Trades at philharmonicblues.com. That's philharmonicblues.com. Are you looking for an affordable way to advertise to thousands of consumers nationally? If you own a business and didn't think you could afford radio advertising, you need to call me, Lori Zook, host of the nationally syndicated radio show, The World of Lori Zook. My show reaches thousands of people on 29 AM and FM stations nationwide, as well as through the internet. 
Additionally, your commercials will also be heard on all of my podcasts and throughout social media sites. Don't wait another minute. Call me at 813-777-4908. 813-777-4908. And let me bring your message to the nation and to help you gain more exposure. Welcome back to the world of Lori Zook. My special guest is Jake Halpern. He's the author of Bad Paper, Inside the Secret World of Debt Collectors, which is a New York Times bestseller. Now, Jake, we were talking about bad paper, and I understand the difference between what you know what you were saying in, in the industry as far as evidence and bad paper to the debt collectors means it's bad and they can't sell it, or it's good that they can sell that list. But let's talk, in the book you talk about this, how many times can bad paper be sold off? Well, you know, it's kind of a it's kind of a, a food chain or a, a kind of a ladder, if you will. So, if you imagine at the very top of the debt buying food chain, you have the original creditors. Say, like your example at Bank of America. So, you know, I have a I Jake have a Bank of America credit card, um, and whatever, I lose my job, and something goes wrong, and I can't pay that bill. Well, after six months, that ceases that that debt that I owe the bank, it ceases to be uh, an asset for them, and they, and they typically will sell it off. And they'll sell it off to a top-tier debt buyer. These are often kind of what they call kind of more white-glove uh, agencies where there's a kind of softer, more customer service approach. Uh, they'll try to collect on it for a handful of months. Then they'll take all the accounts that they couldn't collect on from that spreadsheet, and they'll sell them to the next guy down the line and so on and so forth, the second time and the third time and a fourth time. And as you get to the bottom of this kind of debt food chain, in other words, like the fifth or sixth buyer, you have to imagine that they have to kind of up their, 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 their game because the, the five or six previous owners couldn't collect on this debt. Um, so they're going to have to have a, a more aggressive tactic and talk-off, which is what they call when they call you up on the phone. So, yeah, these debts are sometimes bought five, six, seven, eight, nine times, ten times. Um, and each time the whole collection process is started again. Um, so it's quite confusing for the consumer if you think about it because uh, the, the person that's calling you over this same debt changes, you know, <laughs> with the seasons. Right. It, it does multiple times. And what's supposed to happen from the from the credit end is, let's say Bank of America sold it off. It's on their credit report and it can stay there forever. As ne- well, not forever, but it'll stay there seven years as negative credit. Now they sell it off to, to the f- collection agency A. And collection agency A will list that that collection on their report with that dollar amount. And then as it keeps selling off to collector B, C, D, each one has to zero out or they're supposed to, you know, until it comes up to the most recent one. But here's the other thing that a lot of consumers don't know, and you probably know this, is that there's a statute of limitations for debt collection in each state. So in, yeah. Yeah, so in Florida here, we have a five-year statute of limitations on debt collection, um, but it's different in different states. So what happens, like you were saying, is they keep selling this off. And what happens on the credit report, it's called reaging the debt. Instead of putting the date it initially defaulted through Bank of America, they keep putting the date that they bought it, which comes more current in time, and in essence kind of messes up their credit report under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. But meantime, now, if you're here in Florida and that debt is seven or eight years old, you know what happens if you pay that debt? 
it actually drops your scores and you didn't have to pay it because it was past the statute of limitations. Yeah, what happens is is if the debt is out of stat. So like, you know, like you know that they say like there's no statute of limitations on murder. It right. can, doesn't matter how much time has passed, you can still be tried. Well, many other things do have a statute of limitations. This means after a certain time on the clock, when it ticks out, you are no longer responsible for something that you've done. In this case, this debt. So in Florida, if there's a five-year statute of limitations, after that five years, you are not legally responsible for that debt. Right. They can't sue you on that debt. They have no way of making you pay that debt. The problem is, is that people will still collect on these debts, and they won't tell the consumer, hey, you're not legally obligated to pay this. And what's worse is what you alluded to, which is that, say my debt is six years old, and the statute of limitations has expired. If I pay one dollar on that debt, it, in effect, renews the contract. It revives the right. debt. It's called zombie debt. Yes. It comes back to life. And after you've paid that one dollar, you are then legally responsible for the full amount. Exactly. Um, yeah, and I think a lot of folks don't know this. And there's a very lively trade for this um, so-called out-of-stat debt, debt. Right, because the people, because the consumers don't know what the laws say to protect them, and instead what happens, just like in your book, you can go into that now, is how, how are people intimidated by collectors? Well, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways that people are intimidated. W- one way is that the collector, just, I mean, there are specified kind of parameters for when a collection a collector can call you uh, you know not too early in the morning not too late at night and uh, but, but some collect some collection agencies just disregard this and their tactic is just kind of around the clock harassment they call relatives they call friends to kind of shame you into paying debt a very common uh, you know tactic is also the threat of legal action even when the person calling you has no ability or plan to actually bring you to court there's other ones too where it's you know uh, someone's coming to your house to seize your property to take your kids that you know the child services away. I mean, there's some really ugly tactics as well, and most people are just very unclear about what their rights are and whether or not they have to pay something, and are frightened and um, often pay. Right. Well, they're they're threatened, and I can give you an example. I had a client recently where a debt collector was actually coming to the house every night just before I think eight o'clock and knocking on the door. And yeah, and she, that's awful. And so they're they're frightened, you know. And it was it was a young woman, so she's not going to open up the door. But I can tell you, I got a lot of people crying. I'm usually women, but sometimes men crying on the phone saying, "Oh my God, they're threatening me." Uh, I, my favorite yeah. one is pre legal action because there's no such thing as pre legal yeah. action. Yeah, that's um, that nonsense. Yeah. yeah, and so fortunately here in Florida, I'm a, I'm aligned with attorney. So when I have a client who has a phone call, whether they initiated it or whether the debt collector initiated it, they log the call and they the client knows to look for certain things you know are they calling uh, you know constantly on the auto dialers are they calling before 8 a.m. or after 9 p.m. I can oh let me share a quick story you'll appreciate this one so a few years ago I had a friend uh, we were out one day to lunch and a debt collector called her on a credit card that she had defaulted on because when the market flipped here in Florida she was a mortgage person everybody was in trouble with their you know their work their business and so she was not on the speakerphone 
but the debt collector screamed so loudly through the phone that I could hear every word. And there's, there's this debt collector screaming at my friend saying, you're a liar, you're a thief, you stole the money from the bank. Now, she she happened to know the same collection attorney I did, and we just kind of smiled there because you got that debt collector because guess what? They're on a recorded line. So what typically happens then is the attorney will evaluate that. Sometimes these attorneys for the plaintiff, you know, for the consumer, actually already know the debt collection attorney because a lot of those agencies are owned by attorneys, and they just make a phone call, they pull the log, and they listen to that call, and they know they've lost. And so if they, the attorneys know each other, sometimes it's really simple to get a payment. Other times they have to file suit, you know, and then go through discovery and pull everything out. Um, you know, an interesting thing, too, is I had a client who had a $10,000 judgment stripped off her report because the collector was consistently calling her and threatening her. So, you know, you made some good points. Maybe take me a little bit more through the book in some examples of this, you know, where these things happen. Well, the story that I follow from a consumer's perspective in the book is this woman named Teresa who's uh, lives down in, you know, in the American Southwest. I don't, I don't say where to protect her privacy. She's a former Marine. Uh, she gets out of uh, the Marine Corps, gets a job working in retail, uh, married, kind of living the American dream, and she finds out her husband's having an affair on her, and she, he leaves the house. And she's suddenly left paying the full mortgage uh, and uh, the cars, and she can't kind of keep up, and she falls behind, and she gets in credit card debt. So she has to do triage and figure out which bills to pay and which not to pay, and she can't pay her Washington Mutual card. So some time goes by, and then she gets a call from a collection agency asking her, telling her that she has to pay this Washington Mutual debt, and if she doesn't, they're going to take legal action against her. It's not like thuggish, but it's serious, and they make it clear that, that it is. And she, at that time, is in the process of applying for a job with U.S. Border Patrol. So mm-hmm. as part of that job, you have to have good credit, or else you, um, if you have you know, a lot of debts, it makes you Look risky. Uh, a le- yeah, risky candidate for the job. So she's, she says, look, i got to pay this bill. And she calls back the guys that are collecting on the Washington Mutual card, and she makes a, pay, a plan to pay several installments for a total of about $2,000. And some time goes by, and uh, it's not reflected on a credit report. And in fact, she starts getting uh, calls from another collection agency who's collecting on the same debt. Mm-hmm. Now, what it turns out is that the spreadsheet that contained her debt was stolen. In fact, it was the stolen debt that my banker-bank robber combo bought. And she paid, not the guys that legitimately owned it, which were Aaron and Brandon, the, 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 the duo, she paid some rogue agency in Buffalo that had managed to steal the debt or buy it stolen. So she was out the money. And what was so crazy about the store, I mean, there's many, many levels of the store which are crazy, and I'll, I'll get into them. But she would have no way of knowing. Most people, if you if you got a call on the phone and says, here's your name, here's your address, this is your social security number, this is the day you open this account, this is the balance that you owe, uh, you're going to be sued if you don't pay this. It all sounded very, very legitimate. You would not think that you're talking to some you know thieves who stole this debt. And she had no recourse. Now, what happens is, the way this story plays itself out is, 
if you can imagine, my two main characters in the book, the former banker and the former bank robber, they had bought Teresa's debt, not directly from Washington Mutual, but from another debt buyer. And they are getting a whole string of people like Teresa, who when their collectors call them, these people like Teresa are telling them, hey, we just paid this debt off to someone else. So when Aaron, the former banker, gets this news, he says to Brandon, the former armed robber, hey, you've got to go straighten this out because we're losing money because people aren't paying us. So that's when Brandon, the former armed robber, does his homework and traces back where these people like Teresa are paying. He actually does kind of traces who Teresa paid and founds, finds out that there's this collection agency in Buffalo that's collecting on this debt. And he tries to, he calls them up, they won't have anything of it. And he, the guy threatens Brandon. Brandon packs a car full of guys with guns and drives down to Buffalo. And in a kind of Quentin Tarantino <laughs> type standoff, they have a showdown at the corner store that this guy runs. This guy's also armed. And kind of at gunpoint, broker a truce over who is the true owner of this debt. It was this story, by the way. This is I first heard this story when the screenwriter was down in Buffalo with me working on this Brad Pitt thing. And I thought, this is too, this is like, this needs no fictionalization. This is so crazy. Right. But the, the last thing I'll say about this, and you can bump up some more questions, is that it's tempting to say, well, this has just got to be a freak occurrence. Like, there's something like this can't go on with any regularity or, or whatever. But what I argue in the book and what I believe is that this is exactly what goes on in the absence of a policeman on the block. This is what happens when you have no regulator kind of watching what's going on. And that means that a guy like Brandon, uh, sorry, a guy like Aaron, the former banker, his only recourse for justice is to have his kind of strong man to come in and fix it. And someone like Teresa, who's paid the wrong person, has got no recourse at all because she's paid this debt it has no proof of it, and her credit rating right. is still bad. Yeah, and I, yeah, and um, I, we're gonna we're gonna hold your thought. We're gonna do a quick commercial break. When we come back, I want to talk more about that. Okay. 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 Hang on. Central Payment, your number one credit card merchant service provider in the industry, providing e-commerce solutions, POS systems, standalone terminals, mobile apps, and much more. Call Central Payments, James Carner at 813-777-4332. Looking for the lowest rates in the industry and number one customer service? Call Central Payments, James Carner at 813-777-4332. That's James Carner, 813-777-4332. Do you miss that old school sound that made radio great? Let me invite you to preview Philharmonic's Jack of All Trades at philharmonicblues.com. A collection of Americana blues available as a download for $7.99. You can sample each track on the album page and try before you buy. Philharmonic, Jack of All Trades at philharmonicblues.com. That's philharmonicblues.com. Welcome back to the world of Lori Zook. 
you've been listening to my guest, Jake Halpern, New York Times bestseller of Bad Paper, Inside the Secret World of Debt Collectors. So let, let's talk a little bit more, Jake, about the bad paper. And, and uh, you know, one of the things that I wanted to mention, too, to listeners is this. There is a federal law that protects people called the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, the FDCPA, which, and some states actually have stronger language in their state laws that protect consumers from these debt collectors who harass people. But the problem is they don't know anything about it. Most of them, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, the other thing about this, this, the, um, the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act is it's based on the idea that the way that they intend for this law to kind of have an effect is that if the law is broken, the person who is wrong, the consumer, will bring a lawsuit against the person that has broken the law. <clears throat> so, in other words, there's not like a police force out enforcing this. It's meant to be that, like, that, that, that if I'm a collection agency, I'm so worried about being sued that I won't break the law. The problem is, as you say, most people aren't aware of their rights, so they don't even realize when the laws are broken. And what's more, um, often these collection agencies that are operating, they, they're kind of fly-by-night places where they set up one place, they get a bunch of lawsuits, they close down, and they pop somewhere else under another name. So there are laws on the books that are supposed to be helping people saying, like, look, you can't threaten lawsuits if you don't, you're not really going to bring one. You can't call too early in the morning or too late at night or too many times per day. Um, but it hasn't really proved very effective in terms of actually improving the lives of consumers. Well, you're right. And, and part of that is because the Federal Trade Commission is the regulatory agency, but they don't actually do anything. Um, interestingly enough, if you complain to them about debt collectors, all they do is tally up the numbers. Unless you have, a say, thousands of people in a short amount of time span, like a few days, complaining to them about a specific agency and harassment, really nothing happens. And so it leaves consumers with, well, well what do I do? Now, they can also complain through the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is a government agency, and sometimes they can help consumers. But, you know, the most important thing is this. If, if you owe a debt to somebody and it gets sold off to a collector, what you should be doing as a consumer is saying, you know what, send me proof that you own it. Just because you call me up and say that you that I owe it, send me statements, send me a contract that I signed, send me something, because otherwise they're just buying those spreadsheets correct right yeah i mean it's we live in a system and a where my first piece of advice to you is if someone calls you up and tries to collect on a debt no matter how professional they sound no matter how much information they have about you including your social security your street address your phone number the day you open your bank account I would start with a very healthy degree of skepticism that this is even a real debt that you owe. It may, in fact, turn out to be, but you want to make sure that you're paying the right person and paying the right amount. Um, and it's kind of a, a sad state of affairs. There's no system in place that keeps track of the exact amount of these debts, the paperwork, or who even owns them. And, and the analogy that I like to say is, um, imagine if that was the way the cars were bought and sold. Imagine if someone said to you, oh, I've got that, you know, this nice 2011 Toyota Highlander over there, uh, but I've got no paperwork to prove that it's mine. And, oh, yeah, the DMV, which held all the records for everything, has uh, just blown up. It doesn't exist. But if you give me $4,500 in cash right now, I'll give you the keys. You'd say, <laughs> you'd say right. that's crazy. That, you, can't, you can't do business like that. But that is, in fact, more or less the way the business is being conducted 
with um, consumer debts in this country. Right. And, and I would just, I would add to this that I don't see this as a partisan issue. Like, I don't see this as like, oh, this is a liberal issue versus a conservative issue. You know, I know you've got Ted Cruz out there saying the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau should be shut down. But really, this system doesn't help anyone. I mean, when I, one of the main characters in my book is a very wealthy former banker, Aaron Siegel, who is saying, like, this, the haphazardness of this system, it's not helping Teresa, the former Marine who paid the wrong person down in the Southwest, but it's not helping Aaron Siegel, who's a debt buyer either, because the system is so sloppy that he can't even collect on the debt that he bought. Well, sure. And, and, think, and think about, like, the last thing I'll just say about this is think about what it means if we live in a society where when it comes time for you to pay the debt that you owe, you can't trust anyone who's trying to collect on it. It, it threatens to seize up the entire system of how credit works, of money being lended, lent and repaid. So, you right. know, this isn't like some sort of like crazy lefty muckraking issue. This is like a fundamental, just like kind of, let's make a better mousetrap here so that people on all sides have a, can have faith in the system. Right. You know, because a lot of times, here's the thing, you can pull your, I mean, any consumer can pull their credit report for free at least once a year through annualcreditreport.com and see what's on their report. But here's what happens too, Jake. A lot of times, let's say that debt collector has the debt and now they've sold it off to another collector, of course, for less money, right? It keeps going down until it's, you know, almost nothing because it's now hard, you know, usually hard paper to report on. Um, it becomes even more confusing for for the consumer because if they look at the report, what if the first debt collector has sold it off, but now someone is still calling from there and the the next collector hasn't yet appeared on the credit report and now they've paid that first collector. Oh my gosh, you're right. There's no good way. But I think part of it too is that consumers have to take the time to learn about it because everything they do with with this affects their credit, you know, credit scores. Yeah. And yeah. then if they have, and low, if you have yeah. bad credit, you're, if you have bad credit, you know, uh, the, what, what uh, the conventional wisdom is your money is only worth about 70 cents on the dollar. And, and, and the reason that's true is that you, if you have bad credit, you're paying a premium on everything, right. on your car payment and your, insurance. you know, rental part, your insurance, everything you pay, you're paying more because you have that bad credit, so your money is worth less. Right, because um, you look as you yeah. look like a big risk and to, to any lender who looks at your report. And so, right. I, you know, to me, it's kind of scary because I'm a responsible human being, but I'm also, you know, originally in New York, New Jersey. So, you know, I'm, I'm sort of in that hyper mode. But my parents were very big on finance and credit because if you want to buy a house, the biggest purchase most people will make is a house, and you don't have good credit, you can run the scenarios on a site like bankrate.com where you can see punch in different interest rates and see what your monthly payment different it, you know difference is and then over the course of the loan you could be paying with bad credit four or five times the the initial price of that house that you bought yeah and things like that i think are kind of scary now i know that attorneys own a lot of debt collection companies but from reading your book it sounds like the lower down it gets as they keep selling off for a less and less you know less than a penny on the on the dollar they're no longer owned by attorneys, a lot of these agencies. They're owned a lot of times by, it sounds like, people that were, were ex-felons. Well, okay, if you think about the debt food chain, if we go back to that initial idea that at the top of the food chain you have your original creditor, say the Bank of America, and then you know the first debt buyer in that food chain is going to be kind of a larger, probably a white 
a so-called kind of white glove place where there's more of a customer service aspect. They're not squeezing you as hard. Um, you know, like, and then the further you go down that food chain, the more times it's bought and sold, the harder the tactics become. And sometimes at the very bottom of that food chain, the seventh or eighth tier, where often the debt can be double sold or triple sold, you do have some very rough characters, some kind of uh, who are making illegal threats, some of whom are, you know, ex-cons. But I want to talk about where the lawyers fit, fit into all this. Okay. So if someone calls you on the phone and says, you owe this debt, right, what, what, can they, what can they do to you? Well, if they don't sue you, and most of them can't sue you, really what they can do is use your bad credit rating against you, okay, which is something, as we've just pointed out. Right. Or, and they can just harass you. They can make your life so unpleasant that you pay just to get them off your back. But the, the kind of the lawyers, when they enter the equation, they have this other weapon, and they have the weapon of the courts. And so often the lawyers will buy debt that maybe some people try to collect on unsuccessfully, and they're going to now step in and use this other weapon, which is the lawsuit, to make you pay. And the lawsuit is so effective because once you have that judgment against the, the, the consumer, you can then garnish their wages. Right. When you garnish that wages, you can just literally reach into their bank account and take the money. And, and what makes this process so problematic is this crazy thing, which is that when these lawyers or these law firms get a hold of this debt and sue on it, sometimes the lawyers own the debt, sometimes the lawyers are working for the debt buyers, but when they sue this debt in court and they bring a lawsuit against the consumer, 90% of the time, the consumer does not show up in court. Right. And, and what that yep. yeah. and what that means is, is if you don't show up in court, that means that the amount of evidence that they need to present to show that that debt is what they say it is is very, very low. That spreadsheet is sometimes all there is. And then all of a sudden, you're on the hook for that full amount. That's right, um, and because they yeah. didn't have proof, they didn't have evidence of the debt, which if you had a consumer had known, you could have shown up in court and said, show me the proof, not a spreadsheet, yeah. show me that you actually own the debt. But the, the saddest part, like you said, most consumers don't show up in court. They've yeah. automatically lost, strike out, default judgment, and now goes to garnishment when all you had to do was show up in court and say, show me, show me the proof. Yeah, I mean, and the question becomes, like, why aren't they showing up? And maybe some of them are, are, are irresponsible. Maybe some of them are kind of overwhelmed. I think some folks just think to myself, think to themselves, I don't have this money. There's nothing I can, like, I, I, there's nothing I can do. They see no point in it because they have no way of paying it. And to them, it's kind of all fairly hopeless anyway. The problem is, is that the amount could be wrong. It often is yeah. wrong. And what's more is, once that judgment is in place, it can often be renewed. It can, it can be kind of valid for as long as, you know, 20 years. Right. So that means even once you get your job, they can come and garnish the wages. And I, I'll tell you one story that, that really kind of uh, stuck out for me. Um, I follow this one kind of parcel of debt from start to finish. It's the same parcel of debt that was stolen and then retrieved at gunpoint uh, in my book, Bad Paper. And um, this, some of the accounts on this, this debt, which took a kind of Mr. Toad's wild ride to the underworld, <laughs> ended up eventually being sold to. Yep. yep. Okay. Okay. Good. Sorry, guys. Yeah, That's okay. For a sec. No so, problem. Um, 
So anyway, I, I follow this same parcel of debt that ended up being stolen and retrieved at gunpoint. And uh, when Aaron Siegel, the former banker, finally gets a hold of it, he sells a portion of it, all the Georgia-based accounts, down to a lawyer in Georgia who proceeds to sue on these same accounts. So I traveled on to Georgia kind of following the string of this debt to see what it looked like when it, when it actually showed up in court. And I went to this one courthouse where a lot of these um, debts passed through just to kind of witness the process. And so that particular morning, it was kind of a debtor's court. It was all cases from consumers who uh, were being sued over various typically credit card debts. Right. And I was talking to this one couple. Mm. The husband was named mm. Frederick. He was a builder. He built, he built homes on spec down there. And during the uh, Great Recession, it gotten stuck with a few of these houses where the buyers had backed out. And in order to build these homes, he used his credit card, but also his wife's credit card to buy a lot of supplies. And then he defaulted on the credit card bill. And he defaulted on his wife's credit card bill. And if you're married, you can imagine what stress yeah. that would cause in a marriage. And now Kian is being hauled, the wife is being hauled in court uh, on this account, and she's plainly you know, terrified about this business. So I'm talking to them, and this young guy in a suit calls and says, All right, Frederick and Kian, uh, is this you? I'd like to talk to you for a second. And then I kind of tag along with him, and he says, I represent the, uh, the people that own your debt, and I'd like to offer you the chance to settle this very quickly uh, before we step into the courtroom. And uh, here, here's the proof that we own your debt. And he hands him a piece of paper that looks like a credit card statement, um, only it has no itemized bills. It just says the total amount that's due, but it has their address and all that. But at the top of the page, it says, this is not actually a credit card statement and has never previously been shown to the consumer. <laughs> and it was like, is this someone who just created a mock-up template of, a, of something and was trying to, like, pass it off? And, and uh, I'm listening to this back and forth for a while, and I finally type up and I say, excuse me, uh, do you have any other proof at all that, this, that you own this debt or that this debt is real or any kind of itemized breakdown of this amount is correct? And the lawyer says, who are you? And they, Frederick, he's a guy writing a book. Well, he said, you can't represent them. And they said, I'm not, I'm just asking. They said, we'll bring this in front of the judge. So we go into the courtroom, and the judge calls Kian up, and then the lawyer says something, and he tells me, the on the way to the courtroom, the lawyer told me, I'm going to bring you before the judge, too. And sure enough, the <laughs> judge calls me up, and me and Kian are now being sworn in together as almost like co-defendants. And this young lawyer proceeds with his opening argument and says, will you, Your Honor, will you please tell Mr. Halpern that the penalty for practicing law without a license in the state of Georgia, he could face criminal sanctions, you know. He was intimidated and, by you. Uh, yeah. You know, it, he it, was afraid crazy. of you. Well, I mean, I, at that time, I have to say, I grew up in a house of lawyers. My dad's a law professor. I mean, I was nervous. Um, I can imagine what Kian would feel. I mean, it wasn't even my debt. So I, I say, look, Your Honor, like, look, I'm, I'm a guy writing a book, and uh, this, you know, I, I don't, I'm not trying to defend him. And, and lawyer, lawyer says, well, please tell Mr. Halpern that none of what he heard he can put in his book. And, and the judge says, amazing, the judge says, yes, that's true. You can't put any of this in your book, uh, which, I, of course, is... It is that that wouldn't know, be right. Not, You're in public court. Yeah, it's nonsense. <laughs> so, so finally, the, 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 it comes around, and they say, uh, the judge says, okay, we've resolved this matter with Mr. Halpern's book. Uh, what do you want to do about the matter of the debt that Kian owes or that you claim that she owes? And the young lawyer says, let me consult with my client. And he walks out of the courtroom and he comes back in a minute or two later and he says, Your Honor, we're going to be dropping the matter. And Kian and I, the, the, the supposed debtor, we look at each other, what the? <laughs> what what happened? happened? 
And we're walking out of the courtroom, and this other young lawyer comes up to me and says, Hi, my name is Mike Kapelski. I work with kind of Georgia Legal Aid, and I just want to let you know, I've seen these these cases go on hundreds of times, and I'm not in the least bit surprised that they drop them back. And I said, why aren't you surprised? And he said, oh, because you said the magic words. And I said, what are the magic <laughs> words? He said, the magic words are, prove your case. Right. Show me the evidence. And what, what was so powerful about this moment was I had spent the entire book kind of tracing and chasing after the kind of trail of this spreadsheet of this debt. But when there was actually a moment in court where you would, where you would ask, what is this thing? It was so insubstantial. It was so thin. It was so um, non-existent that it, it disappeared and the, the entire matter was dropped. Um, and so I think that if there's anyone out there that's listening ever received any kind of summons to court, just simply showing up and asking uh, for that evidence and, and asking to prove the case alone is kind of enough to make this thing uh, vanish amazingly. Yeah, it, it is. And one other tip I want to give out too, and I'm sure you're familiar because you come from a family of lawyers, is you can the consumer can actually uh, either verbally or preferably by certified return receipt mail send a cease and desist order stating, "Don't call me again." Yeah. But if you have any proof, you can mail it. You don't want to close down the mail. You can mail me proof. Don't call yeah. me again because once they violate the the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act or or the state law, if that company does violate and calls them again or you know starts harassing them again, all they have to do is write down the phone call, the name, the date, the time, the person they spoke to, the company name. And do you know that most consumer attorneys there are, are ones that specialize in debt collection? They take these cases for free. If and yeah. then then they win on behalf of the 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 client who it's a thousand dollar statutory violation in most cases and sometimes there can be damages and the attorney's fees are paid from the debt collection you know the losing side people really yeah. don't realize exactly what you said that whole point is you followed everything all the way down and then you went revelations you got to court there's no proof yeah there's no proof yeah yeah that was a, a bizarre I'll never forget that. <laughs> That had to be amazing. Well, I want to thank you so much, Jake, for joining me today. If, if a listener would like to contact you, what would be the best way? Sure. Well, I mean, first, I would encourage them to either read my book, Bad Paper, or read the New York Times Magazine cover story that excerpted the book called Paper Boys. I also have a website, which is just jakehalpern.com, and there's an opportunity there where you can send an email through my website. Great. Thanks again for joining me, Jake. It's been a privilege. And his book is a New York Times bestseller, Bad Paper, Inside the Secret World of Debt Collectors. Great reading. And join us again next week. Thanks so much. Thank you.
Are you looking for an affordable way to advertise to thousands of consumers nationally? If you own a business and didn't think you could afford radio advertising, you need to call me, Lori Zook, host of the nationally syndicated radio show, The World of Lori Zook. My show reaches thousands of people on 29 AM and FM stations nationwide, as well as through the internet. Additionally, your commercials will also be heard on all of my podcasts and throughout social media sites. Don't wait another minute. Call me at 813-777-4908, 813-777-4908, and let me bring your message to the nation and to help you gain more exposure.